Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today, and they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's guest was actually on the show uh, just two weeks ago. It is Chris Cook, energy market strategist and senior research fellow at University College London. Now, I asked Chris to come back on the show uh, to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to discuss the economic sanctions that are being put in place, whether or not they'll be effective, uh, how Russia's energy dominance uh, over Europe will impact this war, what can be done, and how we can build markets that will stop this kind of terrible invasion and attack in the future. Now, Chris uh, delves into, during the second half of the episode, the theory of markets that he touched on during our first episode to explain how mutuality and cooperation are built on transparency uh, and agreements. Um, And what he has to say about this war and his experience in Iran, the energy market there, the sanctions that were put in place. And then finally, the dominance of the United States and the weaponization of the dollar and how all of these factors have come to engender this crisis, this terrible attack on Ukraine is fascinating. I'm very grateful to Chris that he made the time to speak with me such last minute. And I hope that this episode shines a light on some of the larger questions hovering over what's going on in Ukraine. If you enjoy the episode, you can support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. Interview transcripts are now available for both paid subscribers and for patrons. And thank you to everyone who is already supporting the project. Chris, I'm so grateful to have you on the show again just a few weeks after uh, your last episode about energy markets because it's all kicked off. Russia's invaded Ukraine. There's all these talks of um, how economic sanctions are going to hurt Russia, despite the fact that we're really dependent on Russian energy. And I just thought it'd be best to have you on to clarify what's actually being proposed and if it will be any use in in your experience. So first of all, thank you for joining me again. Well, thank you uh, for um, making the uh, the contact because, you know, it's a subject of great interest to me and 40 years experience, really. So, um, yeah, where to begin? Just before I hit record, we were talking about your experience uh, with Iran, the energy market mm. there and the sanctions that were put on Iran. Can you give a little bit of history into that and what we might learn uh-huh. um, from those sanctions and how they're being applied now to Russia? Yeah, well, I mean, my history with Iran began 20 odd years ago. My colleague and I, we put forward a proposal to Iran at the time that the new the Intercontinental Exchange was taking over the Petroleum Exchange. We believe that that would lead to financialization of the oil markets, which it has in the last 20 years. Mm. And my friend being Iranian, we wrote to the governor of the central bank in, uh, who he knew in, in Iran, obviously. <laughs> and um, we recommended that a, a Middle Eastern benchmark should be um, put in place. What, what does that mean exactly? Well, the global benchmark price at the moment is Brent, North Sea, has been mm. for a long time, but Brent, the Brent field is only a small part of it now, almost vanishingly small. It's the Norwegian fields, which are the biggest ones now. 
And the, the other um, benchmark price is what's called West Texas Intermediate, which is a US one. And, right. and in fact, the market benchmark has sort of swung back to the US. You know, that's a sideline. Point was, I, I worked on a, a Middle Eastern benchmark when I was at IP in the 90s, because that's where all the oil is. So it's an obvious place to have a benchmark price, yeah. you know. Yeah. And we we put this recommendation forward for a Middle East exchange. And then the phone went about two, three years later. And next thing I know, I'm over in Iran at the central bank making a presentation for a what became known as the Iran oil bourse. So mm -hmm. rather than have it as a Middle Eastern exchange, they wanted it as an Iranian exchange, which is fine. And it was from that, my experience of Iran sort of, I've been there a dozen times. I've seen how it's changed in the, interim period of 15 to 20 years as an entire new generation has grown up and the changes that took place have been absolutely fascinating. But more to the point, I've seen sanctions at work and I've seen and talked to people at top level over there about the effect of them mm. and, and observed the effect of them. And there are essentially two types of sanction that were applied. One was physical sanctions. So you, you literally, the Iranians literally couldn't lay their hand on the goods and the goods that they that they wanted, they couldn't mm. get them. Well, that backfired because they started building capacity, being smart people, um, and started doing it themselves. Mm. Because, of course, what they call the curse of oil is that rich nations get rich and fat and lose any sort of capacity to do the stuff themselves and bring in outside contractors to do it. They call it the resource curse, you know, which it is. So physical sanctions just didn't, didn't work, never really have. The financial sanctions different ball game and the Americans got gradually developed over a period, but <laughs> they were, I always say that they were tactically became quite smart and they're getting smarter still, still, and we can go on to that, mm -hmm. but they were strategically failed massively because what happened was the Ahmadinejad regime was completely, it was a kleptocracy. And if the Americans had done what they did everywhere else, like to Russia and said, okay, guys, here's some bank accounts, you know, ship your money out, Iran would have collapsed. It would have collapsed in the same way that post-Soviet Russia collapsed. Yeah. If the Americans had been smart, yeah. instead of coming up with literally self-defeating sanctions, which is what they did, they were financially, they were just dumb sanctions. But the gradually... In more recent years, what they've done is they've personalized them. Now, that is quite smart, okay? Actually looking at the people in power, finding where their assets are, where yeah. their kids go to school, stuff like that, because that's what they all do. You know, all the Iranian elites educated their kids in America. And so targeting them, and this is exactly what I think they're now doing or looking to do with Russia. So mm -hmm. that's a smart sanction compared to these indiscriminate ones, which is basically about punishing the population. Right. And is self-defeating because it just makes them more pissed off, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> does that help? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, kind of dipping into what we discussed the last time then as well, mm -hmm. what I'm picking up on that is that people, it's not really in human nature to just um, roll over, is it? Like if you take something away from communities and populations, they will find a resilient way 
to mm-hmm. get what it is that they need. And that's what happened mm-hmm. in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly um, we're seeing in Russia right now the queues of this population, most of whom do not want this war, mm-hmm. um, queuing up to try and take, you know, liquid cash out of the bank because they're terrified of what's going to happen. But we are also seeing, you know, these attempts at personalized sanctions mm-hmm. against the Russian oligarchs, the 25 mm-hmm. of them that kind of run the country. So you think that that will be more important than cutting Russia off from SWIFT, for example? I think it's more effective, and certainly than than cutting them off from SWIFT, which is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Right. It's very worrying what they've done. Very the worrying. What, oh, yeah, yeah. This weaponization of the do- dollar is, is, is really dangerous. Really dangerous. You know, and again, I think that that, that will, I, I mean, people have been saying, oh, it's going to lead to a new, there's all sorts of rubbish talked about the Chinese, you know, as going to be the next global currency. And no, it's not, not until they completely change their policy. It won't mm. be. People don't even tend to understand what a reserve currency even is. But everybody does want to come up, I think, with a more rational market structure. And that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing I've been working on for a long, long time. It just isn't. For, for me, this, we're going through a sort of transition to something different. I think th- this event, you know, Putin doing what he did, which frankly, I think he's, you know, is a big mistake, strategic mm-hmm. mistake. Um, but it literally is going to change the game. I mean, they've, what the Russians have always wanted well, for a long, long time is a different, I think a new settlement is what they've been looking for. We never really got a post-Cold War settlement. They attempted them with the Minsk Agreement and I think the Paris Charter. But I'm sorry, the Americans made a massive strategic mistake by essentially saying, okay, well, despite what we actually said we would do, we will extend NATO eastwards. And that's that's a strategic error by the Americans. And I think just because Putin might be paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get him because they are out to get him. Mm. But we are where we Mm. are, Rachel. We are where we are, and we, we have to find a constructive way forward. And, you know, that's not particularly evident at the minute. Absolutely. So tell me then about Europe's dependence on Russian energy. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, how dependent are we? How much of our energy do we get from them? And could we reach the stage where we sanction them economically and then they just turn off the tap and go, well, mm-hmm. there you go then, no more energy for you? Yeah, that is a risk. And then that's a risk that is it's a sort of nuclear option. You know, if we're not getting paid for it, the Russians could say, why send it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but let's, let's just go back a bit, Rachel, mm-hmm. because, you know, during the Cold War, which really was, you know, a Cold War, you know, it was really quite, you know, this clash of ideologies between the West mm. and the East. I mean, the USSR was reliably <laughs> supplying, you know, oil and gas to the West. And who were reliably paying them for it, Mm. okay? And it's interesting because as a parallel to that, when Iran was at its most radical under Khomeini, guess what? They were flogging oil to Israel via Mark Rich as a middleman, right? Right. And they were doing it quite reliably and nobody batted an eyelid about it. Mm. It was only once the middlemen got in, right, when the markets got in, when the oligarchs got in, and what I call in Iran the theologarchs got in, right? After mm-hmm. Khomeini died, that's when people, because if you do that, you can start dipping your bread, can't you? Mm-hmm. And that's what they started to do. And the previous cutoff 
and everybody says, oh, Putin cut off the gas. Well, actually, he wasn't being paid by Ukrainian oligarchs who were essentially taking a great big fat transit tax, which is what it was, you know, and he got rather pissed off about it. And I can't say I blame him as a sort of supplier. When was this, sorry? That was about 2014 or so. Was that before or after he annexed Crimea? I think that I'd have to I'd have to check on the dates when he actually cut off Ukraine, but it right. was it was essentially a commercial dispute between two you know, between two oligarchies, and it also let I mean we also that's one of the reasons why you're looking at Nord Stream, isn't it? Hmm. Because he decided that well actually I I can't I need to diversify my supply routes, and everybody said oh my god you know the Russia we're going to be more reliant upon the Russians well actually. It increases the resilience that you have if you've got more than one supply route. Right. And it works two ways. You see, the thing is, Rachel, pipelines have two ends. You know, it's not like you can divert a pipeline somewhere else. Mm. You know, you're, you're sort of stuck with it. And then, you know, gas molecules flow one way and euros or dollars flow the other. You know, so that, that there is a mutual dependence there. Mm. <clears throat> how, how much of our energy supply are we currently getting from Russia? We're not getting any to speak of. Europe is getting between 30 and 40%. Wow. Yeah. But equally, that works two ways. Yeah. <laughs> most, of, most of Russia's supply and sales goes to Europe, you know. So, yeah, Germany's a big customer. Mm. Um, you know, Holland, oh, oh, most of the countries. We maybe get a little bit makes its way through. But it's hard to distinguish one molecule from another. They don't, yeah. have, Russian, they don't have Russian flags on them. You know? <laughs> So hang on, tell me then, mm. what, let, allow me this little thought experiment, mm. right? Europe does its, uh, well, the, the West, which it really is the West now, do their economic sanctions and try and mm. hit the oligarchs. Mm. And then Putin turns the tap off and goes, right, fine, you don't get any more energy. How would he then continue financing the war, for example? Um, well, I mean, if it's not actually difficult to print rubles and buy things in rubles. Provided, provided he's self-sufficient in terms of the means of production, provided he's got the metals in Russia, he's got the things he needs in Russia, well, he can print rubles to do it. You know? I, thought, I thought the whole thing was you're not allowed to print money. <laughs> well, no, that's the, that, that is the completely misconceived work, banking world in which we live, and that's the subject of another right. session, Rachel. I'm booking a third one now. <laughs> but no, I mean... The monetary system we have at the moment, you may have come across modern monetary theory, MMT, mm -hmm. for instance, which is interesting, but it's incomplete in my view. I came across it a decade ago, and it's, an, it's interesting what they do. But I, I personally take the view that, you know, treasuries and central banks are just so last century, you know, that we're going to move on to more decentralized and distributed financial system. Hence, I'm at the Institute for Strategy, Resilience and Security, because resilience is bottom up. Hmm. And that's where the world is leading. But again, part that, yes, they can print. What causes inflation is not printing money. It's having the resources or rather not having the resources. Okay. You can actually, you can actually print rubles and spend them in your own country and there'll be no inflation provided the resources are there. You've got a problem if you actually need stuff from outside of Russia. So maybe parts or materials or raw materials in particular but russia does have a pretty yeah. widespread of materials yeah but there are things they don't have certain components high-tech components and whatnot but again 
China will be only too happy to supply them with that these days. And uh, China, the, the thing is that at the moment, Russia does supply a lot of gas to China and China wants everything Russia can produce. But most of the, a lot of the fields are not connected to pipelines that go to China, right? Right. They're looking to actually put a pipeline in to make that possible because at the moment, you know, it, you, you can have a monopoly, but on the other side, you've got a monopsony. You know, you've only got one buyer, you've only got one mm-hmm. seller. So it, it is this sort of two drunks holding each other up. Yeah. Europe in particular, Germany in particular, because they're a big, they are a powerhouse. And, and, and France has, of course, got this big nuclear fleet of power. But uh, Germany, Holland, Holland, in fact, are interesting. They've got a, there's a 50% joint venture between a Russian company, Alpha, and the Dutch. And, and so they own gas fields in the North Sea. And um, they've essentially got a pot of production, which they, they, they can use as like a, you know, a sort of pool, which they can trade with. They, they opened uh, Gazprom, opened, they opened retail energy outlets, if you like. Gazprom provides business uh, gas in the UK, mm. has done for a good while, because there's no cap, there's no cap on, the, um, on business gas prices. There is a cap on retail gas prices. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. So, so then let me continue and please tell me this thought experiment is completely mm. useless. But if we may continue it, then Russia's pretty independent, arguably, then it has mm-hmm. access to its own energy supply. It has access to a lot of raw materials and resources. Mm. And it's got its big pal China over there that would be happy to supply whatever it's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, then say Putin as a madman were to take that step mm-hmm. and up the ante. What mm. would Europe's response be? I mean, could he use this energy dominance to win this war? He could make life very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going out of winter now, um, but it would be it would be it would make life very uncomfortable for Europe. It would um, not so much for us right. because we we get very you know, we've got the Norwegian gas a lot of it. In fact, one of the jokes is um, we actually export gas. We don't, right. we don't use everything that's produces in our sector of the North Sea. And our North Sea producers are making out like bandits right now. What do you mean? Well, you know, think about it. If the price is massive, who's on the other side of the trade? The gas producers and the oil producers are making phenomenal amounts of money. You should see the profits that BP, Shell and the rest of them are making. Right. You know, the ones in the North Sea. And Iran actually owns gas in the North Sea. Not many people know that. They are actually providing gas to the UK. They bought it. You know, they were very canny. They actually invested in those fields under the Shah. Right. Right. So that's been around a long time and they made some canny investments. So that gas is about, they supply about two and a half percent of UK's gas. That's when it's not being exported to somewhere else. (laughs) The whole point is that we should the, the market sends energy to the highest price, irrespective of any requirements for resilience that we mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. You know, you should see what's going on in Norway right now. It's insane, absolutely insane what they're doing with, with these electricity markets. Mm-hmm. And I, say, I said 20 years ago it would end this way. It was nonsense. So then, it, sorry. Just, mm. just, just to like take a little detour. Then mm. imagine if we had in place a resilient energy market. Mm-hmm. 
based on you know the research that you and your colleagues have been mm-hmm. doing um how would that impact global security in the future i mean mm-hmm. what kind of position would that put a nation like russia in that has so much energy or china that has so many resources and materials mm. well i mean they would love it a resilient oh. market that's okay. what they want you see at the at the moment right the, the russians have supplied People have said, oh, the Russians are deliberately holding back, you know, deliveries. No, they haven't. What they've been doing is all their contract, they want m- as many contracts as possible to be long-term. Mm. They want to supply on a long-term basis, whereas the market is about insane day-to-day trading, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're setting prices day-to-day practically. And then we we wonder why we get spikes in prices. And, you know, well, one of the reasons, again, there's no storage. We had gas storage. You need a buffer stock in order to supply out of stock. Well, guess what? We shut it down five years ago or something like that because there was no, there was no profit in it. It's insane. It's an insane market. This is what happens when you commoditize molecules, Mm. when, when you buy and sell molecules and you buy and sell electrons. And that's before we even talk about the insanity of buying and selling CO2. Mm. You know, sorry, I, I go on a rant very easily. <laughs> My kind of rants. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but coming back to the point, which is one of your questions, what else can we do? Mm. What would a resilient market look like? And that's, that has been the subject of my work for the last 10, 12 years or more. And I've got a fairly clear view of what that is. Firstly, what you don't want is to change any law, right? Because always what happens is somebody resists that, right? You know, somebody's always benefiting and the person who's losing is the one who wants to change the law. Right. So that's what you get. You don't want to have a method whereby you need to change the law. And that means sort of mutual agreements. Now, what we're proposing, and it's the, the, the idea is not just mine. I've been working with a friend of mine who actually is, he, Iranian friend, he's actually in London for the first time in years, actually. And he invented, he was one of the most senior Iranian um, energy people. He reported directly to the OPEC representative. And he was in charge of all the Caspian oil and gas, uh, multi-billion budgets and whatnot. Very, very intelligent, lovely man, with great integrity, which is not always the case. And going way back to the, um, there was a war in 1990 between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And it, we had round two, actually, only a year, less than a year ago. We had the round two in that war. And it was a nasty war. It went on for about eight years. And, of course, Iran is on the border of both of those countries. And it's one thing, what, what they did, because my, my friend actually suggested that this should be done, was that they supplied gas supplied gas to an enclave that was isolated called Nagorno-Karabakh. And they were going to freeze to death, lots of people. You know, it was wartime, everything's destroyed, a lot of things destroyed. And, and Iran supplied gas to Nagorno-Karabakh, which was an enclave of Armenia. In exchange, they got spare electricity coming from a nuclear power plant in Armenia. It was an ex-Soviet era power plant with spare capacity. Mm-hmm. So it was a swap. Okay. Iran did not sell its gas. This is the key point. They yeah. didn't sell it. 
in exchange for dollars and then buy electricity with dollars, what they did was they swapped it. Mm -hmm. And Marmo did this again. I'm giving his name. And um, what he also arranged was for a swap. They called it the Caspian oil swap. So oil from Turkmenistan came into the north of Iran. And that oil was financed and funded by venture capitalists, you know, oil companies who were wondering how the hell can we get paid? Mm. <laughs> you know, so the oil was supplied to the Tabriz refinery and, and swapped for a supply of a different grade of oil coming out of the Persian Gulf. And that, that's what I would call a geographical swap. The other right. one, the other one was a swap of converting one form of energy for another. Yeah. yeah. Now the, these are, these are swaps of flow and these swaps of flow can be done in addition to anything else you're doing. So there's no reason why Russia, for instance, could not supply gas into this pool of gas that sits in Europe, mm -hmm. particularly when they've got this pot of, you know, a winter sold gas sitting there as well. Now that could be swapped for a supply of gas coming into the UK, right? It's not sold, it's supplied and swapped mm -hmm. for maybe a supply of then power in the UK. Mm -hmm. They could do that using swaps and it goes, it transcends this commodity market. It's what's called over the counter or it's an additional tool. No mm -hmm. reason why it can't be done at all. You could do it tomorrow because it's a mutual agreement. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of thing. That's the way I see it happening. These swaps, the, the one I wax lyrical about because I'm really more interested, not so much in, 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 in oil and gas and, 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 and electricity, but how do we actually make the transition to, you know, a, a new economy? That's one of your questions. Hmm. And there are different forms of swap. The best one is the 1778 swap that James Watt did. You know, the Scottish inventor. Mm -hmm. He invented a new pump, much more efficient than the old one. He didn't sell it to the Cornish tin mines who had a water pumping problem and had a very inefficient pump. He gave them the use of it. Yeah. Pumping as a service in exchange for a third of the coal they saved. Yeah. Now, the beauty about that model, Rachel, is you're saving at the retail price, right? Whereas if you're selling, you know, if you actually sell power, it goes in at the wholesale bid and you buy it back. So, you, you know, you sell for five pence what you buy back for 15 or now it's 25 or 30, right? Savings are made at the retail price. And I, I talk about smart swaps. Because I believe that the biggest trade of the 21st century is going to be a swap of what's between our ears, mm. you know, knowledge, know-how, know-who, mm -hmm. a swap of that for carbon fuel savings made at the retail price, yeah. electricity made at the retail price. Does yeah. that make sense in terms of a, a market in essentially in services? Yeah. So just to conclude the sort of riff, the current market is centralized. It's got middlemen called exchanges and banks and whatnot. They're the middlemen and it's capital intensive and it's intensive in resources. What we're going to this smart economy is intensive in intellectual capital, if I can call it that. And so we're seeing a, a complete paradigm shift going on right now, I believe. And, and it's, I think it will, it will take place much more quickly than people think. See. You, you had me convinced that during our, our last interview about, you know, market 
this right. idea of this network. is a good example of it yeah yep. <clears throat> but i mean the thing to me the question that comes up then would be well a can these resilient markets promote um global stability and mm. peace mm -hmm. and then how could these resilient markets function during times of war mm. well uh, what i'm saying is i mean what mahmoud or the iranians called what they did they called it energy for peace right um... they called it energy for peace and you know what is it putin's looking for he wants stable long-term supply agreements he says so you know what he didn't want to do and what they haven't been doing is selling gas on the open market because it's volatile now if you think about it rachel mm. i mean a, yeah i think i mentioned this before the supplier the producer wants stable high price transparent markets and the buyer mm. wants stable low price transparent markets but the middleman stability and transparency are death they yeah. don't make money that way so yeah. what we're talking about back to the last you know session i had cutting out the middleman requires this combination of swaps on the one hand and literally monetizing energy on the other with this very simple idea of here's a voucher that you can use to pay your electricity bill right mm -hmm. a token if you like but not a blockchain or you know or or a token in that sense it's a promise or an iou think of it as an iou mm -hmm. you know would that then improve intergovernmental relationships if they were swapping rather than trading through middlemen yes because i think so because first of all they have to be transparent to do it mm. you know that that's one thing uh, secondly the interesting thing about these energy credits is they've got names on them right mm -hmm. dollar bills don't have names on them okay yeah, so if you're into sort of you know and a lot of people are into sort of you know you know corruption things like this i mean it's it's the norm in many countries we just yeah. do it in a much more subtle way you know yeah. uh, but we're involved in it nonetheless well oh, yes if you there's somebody i know said many years ago he said the difference between electronic cash and electronic money is electronic money knows who owns it right and that's exactly the point there would be a level of transparency here because what we're talking about rachel is a prepayment that's mm -hmm. what that's what a voucher is it's it's prepayment and you know if you issue if you sell forward a lot of your production in this way and you get prepaid for it what is the risk to the buyer well the risk is that you don't actually have the supply that he's paid you for right mm. so it has to be transparent otherwise it's not going to work you know but transparency is not enough you also need what i would call quality control which if you go back a thousand years that was what the mint did the mm -hmm. mint the mint was quality control you mm -hmm. would take bullion to the mint they would assay it they would coin it and they would issue it but it mm -hmm. wasn't the mint's coin they were just the quality control mechanism and i think we'll see that reinvented in modern form rachel i do mm -hmm. you know you could see like um Imagine an energy treasury. I write yeah. about that. And a mint. And an exchequer, which is a shared data. Shared ledger is an exchequer. That's what it public was. Public ledger. Exactly. Shared mm. public ledger. And the blockchain. Well, the blockchain, the trouble with that is it's a collective and it's replicated mm -hmm. at vast expense of energy. What yes. I, what I invented in 1998 
was a shared market ledger, basically shared registration. Um, and, and there, the uniqueness, because you had to have, thing about the blockchain is, it meant you couldn't do double spending, nor could you in what I invented back then, mm -hmm. because you had it in unique time order, mm -hmm. right? It would be registered in unique time order. The difference is that the blockchain is what I would call synchronous. Mm -hmm. It's all registered at the same time. Right, yeah. What I'm proposing is that it's asynchronous and it's just registered in unique time order. But by doing that, and what I did predated the blockchain by 10 years, and, and basically exchanges use it in a proprietary form, um, it just works and, it, mm -hmm. and it, it is unique. So from that point of view, the blockchain, the blockchain and coins, what they actually did, Rachel, which is, I think, a game changer, they literally demonstrated that debt, equity, derivatives, and not the only forms of instruments out there. The coins may have subjective value, but they're not the old system. Yeah. Whereas what I'm, what I'm saying is prepayment also has objective value. Mm -hmm. And it was there before debt, equity, and derivatives even existed. But I'm yeah. sure I riffed about this last time we spoke. <laughs> well, let's, let's get back to, to Russia and this, and this energy question. I mean... Um, do you think it's likely that Putin will, you know, use that question of, of, do you think it's likely he'll turn the taps off or that he'll up the ante in that way? I think there's a, if, if the West continues with its chosen path, it might, he might say, sod it. Hmm. Why not? What difference does it make? Yeah. That what, is the risk. Hmm. What do you think? would be a better strategy um, from the West to de-escalate the, the conflict and also, put him, and also put him in his place. I mean, it is shocking mm. what he's done Completely. invading a sovereign country. Completely. Absolutely. Mm. I agree with you 100%. Um, and there's a, a large degree on, on one side of the argument about what about her, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 what about what the Americans yeah. did, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That doesn't excuse what he's done. What he's done yeah. is absolutely wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and in my view, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, um, I, I don't think he's quite the dictator that people think he is. I put it this way. There are people in Russia who could come together and say, right, that's enough. Yeah. Okay. And I have a feeling that that might be what happens that they really are quite, you might not, you might not think this, but they are holding back quite a bit in, um, in Ukraine. Ukraine does have an interest in making the most of what is happening. And every death is a tragedy. I mean, don't get me wrong again. I'm not excusing anything that's going on there mm -hmm. at all. But um, there are two sides to every coin. And I think there is a huge reluctance. Don't forget, it's mainly a conscript army Russia has got. They're people who talk the same language. You know, body bags starting going home is not good. I mean, yeah. Christ, they got mobile crematoria and all the rest of it is what I've yeah. heard. But I don't know if that's apocryphal to me, but yeah, I mean, what's the end game here? Well, I do think the only settlement has to be a, a whole, you know, a whole system has to be, you know, like the Minsk agreement attempted to be and the Paris charter attempted to be, but the, you know, the, the U S like with the Bretton Woods agreement, they want, they, they had it their own way. Right. And 
they, they're probably saying, well, okay, we can weaponize the dollar and the dollar's going to be there forever. I don't think so. Yeah. And I think also people underestimate the influence of China. Mm -hmm. You know, China, it did make some sort of intervention not that long ago. And, and I think Putin basically, don't forget, his only access to um, goods and services is coming via that Chinese pipeline if he shuts this one down, yeah. right? Yeah. I personally wouldn't want to have the Chinese as my only buyer. They're pretty ruthless, mate. They're pretty, they're pretty ruthless. <laughs> you know, I would like to have an alternative buyer if I had Chinese buyers. You see the point. But then couldn't that be quite a good move strategically for the West? It hasn't the great fear been that there's these two big, powerful nations, China mm. being the alpha dog, but Russia being a big threat nonetheless. Mm. But if Russia has to cow to China in that sense, don't you kind of then minimize one of those one of those risks? Yeah, you sort of do, but it's not stable. Yeah, true. It's not stable. Um you know, what currency do they settle in? Well, the Chinese, in one way, they settle in yuan, in the other, they settle in rubles. Mm. Um, but they still maybe price, they still probably price in dollars implicitly. Mm. You know, it's, it's not sustainable. A new global means of exchange and clearing system is needed. The dollar is not it. And we've seen how much the dollar is not it. The Chinese must be literally crapping themselves in terms of where do we put our money now? if the Americans can grab every last cent we've got, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is what's happening here, yeah. you know, and, and I think some of what America's just been doing and look at what they did with the Afghans. Oh, thank you very much. We're going to have that money. We're going to give it to people for 9-11. Uh, yeah. Well, hello, 9-11 wasn't down to the bloody Afghans. It was down to the Saudis, yeah. you know, or Saudi people anyway, on that plane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, no, you can't, you, you cannot, it's not sustainable the way it is. And I think that's why it's sort of end of an era stuff. There needs to be, a, a, you know, um, a, a, you know, call it a Bretton Woods Mark II or whatever you like to call it, but there has to be a new settlement. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe the United States of America is overplaying its hand here, flexing too mm. many muscles that are making it actually weak because people just won't accept it anymore. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the way it's going. I mean, there are wise heads there, many wise heads in the US, but there's always this American exceptionalism has been sitting around for a long, long time, you know? If you go back to Bush and when, you know, when they, they attacked Iraq and it was, all, it was all going to be very difficult, but guess what? It was all over in weeks. And the Americans then could have come up with a new settlement, but oh no, the neocons, real men go to Tehran. That's what they were saying, you know? That was a moment that was lost. Right. But I think we've now reached a point at which people have got rather tired of all the, the killing and whatnot. No, I really do think so. There's a big change needed, and it has, to, it has to be holistic. And the markets are part of it, and the payments are part of it. I mean, it also sounds like we discussed this before. We discussed, mm. you know, equity and through that equality. But it also sounds like, you know, if you want to create a markets 3.0 where there's a sense of swaps and you're getting rid of middlemen mm. and you're accounting mm. for transparency, I mean, it also then means that there is no space in the world for a top dog regime mm. like the United States. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to hear this because you see a lot of stuff on Twitter, especially um, the minute that this war kicked off. 
there's a certain section of leftists that like mm. to say, well, you know, it's because the West did this and the US has a history of doing X and, you know, mm-hmm. they're domineering. Nah, 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 nah. Don't think that was the moment. Um, but nonetheless, what you are clarifying is that the market systems that are currently in place are kind of supported by and engender that that dominance of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's causing this amount of friction for nations mm. like Russia and China. But then would it not happen that another, that would just create a power vacuum and one of these other nations would step in and take well, top I, position? Well, I think that the key, the key to it is this word about its dominance. Mm. You know, the Americans have this doctrine they introduced in 1st of July, 2017. It was intriguing under Trump. Mm-hmm. And yet it was it was introduced by a Democrat, Gary Cohn, and Rex Tillerson, who is like, you know, um, he is a Republican, but he's a very he's not exactly a Trump Republican. Mm. And, and I thought at the time, what the hell are they doing in in a Trump administration? You know, and, and I couldn't work out what they were doing um, until I saw that happen, this energy dominance doctrine. Because at that moment, what they then did the Saudis stopped pricing oil on the 1st of July, 2017, when they brought this new doctrine in, they stopped pricing oil against a formula, which is based on Brent called B-Wave, Brent weighted average, which they've been doing for 16 years under the intercontinental exchange. Hmm. You know who founded the intercontinental exchange? Gary Cohn. Right. Gary Cohn of Goldman and John Shapiro of, of, of Morgan Stanley sat down for dinner one day and came up with a fantastic, fantastic strategy hmm. and implemented it. And they literally financialized the oil market. But that changed, that paradigm changed at that point into energy dominance because of what essentially that meant was the Brent benchmark has over the last two or three years essentially given way. So that it used to be the Brent dog wagged the WTI tail for a long, long time. But now WTI is sort of, the, the new one and even that's changing and i could wax lyrical about you know market technicalities but i won't but the point is the americans dominate the oil market and my thesis is and this is pure speculation because you never prove it but i'm 99 percent sure that they have linked the dollar to oil okay they've linked it and what I, does that I, mean well literally it's like an energy standard it's an oil standard that they've essentially fixed it. So the dollar and the oil price are linked. It's, mm-hmm. it's called a peg or a, I believe so. It, it, it's within certain boundaries, Rachel. So it might be between certain, maybe plus or minus 5% of a particular target rate. Yeah. But what they've also done, and this is not a new strategy. You know, one of your questions I'm just looking at here is, <laughs> why did the price of oil break $100 per barrel once Russia invaded? Well, the reason is it had reached $90 before it did. And it had no business being at $90, mm-hmm. right? If you go back only three months, it was $65. God. And what we saw was a massive flow of funds coming into the market, nothing to do with physical oil prices at all, right? Physical oil, the physical oil market had nothing to do with it. This is financial purchases. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I gave you an example previously, but it's such a good one. Between mid-2007, the price was $80. Mm -hmm. By July of 2008, it reached $147, and people say it could do that again. Yeah, yeah. 
within five months in 2008, it was $35. And by the middle of 2009, it was $80 again. So it went 80, 147, 35, 80 in two years. During that time, Rachel, uh-huh. do you know how much the actual physical supply changed? I have no idea. Less than 3%. Now what? that, yes, yeah, <gasps> less than 3%. But Rachel, that's not a market. That's a casino. No. That is an absolute <laughs> casino. <laughs> yes. And it's a casino that I like to say, you know, six zeros and a crooked croupier, right? Yeah. That's how bad that was and is. You see, <laughs> Commodity Market 101, if a producer can support prices, if he can, he will. And he can do so for decades, like the tin market from the Second World War all the way to 1985 was supported by a cartel of producers. Right. The other markets did the same, coffee, cocoa. They all tried to, in order to support the price, you have to have a means of storing inventory. Right, you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to keep product off the market, like De Beers with diamonds. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Yes, yeah, I remember that case study. Well, cl- classic case. That yeah. was like a monopoly. Yeah. But you know, that's what happened until eventually, in 1995, I started in regulation the year after. Um, cheap material came in. The producer cartel ran out of money, and the price went from eight thousand dollars a ton to four thousand dollars a ton overnight. Wow. You know, and Mm -hmm. I believe that that's what's been happening in the oil market that we call, I call it macro manipulation, which can go on for decades. The, the copper market was manipulated by Sumitomo for 10 years. And that in my view is what's been going on here. How, sorry, because they're, they're holding inventory. Well, in this case, it was Enron to blame and Enron came up with a new technique of funding things called prepayment, right? right? But it was done invisibly i advocate prepayment as a means mm-hmm. of funding things but it has to be invisibly mm-hmm. enron did it invisibly so that 70 percent of their funding the the underlying business never existed you know it's a fascinating case study okay. of um it was a fraud and people went to prison for long terms because of it but that opaque prepayment it enabled um, oil to be funded invisibly to the market. And Isabella Kaminska, she invented the, came up with the expression dark inventory, mm-hmm. which is inventory which appears to be in somebody's ownership, but somebody else has prepaid. And that's, uh... not, and that's not visible. I'm absolutely sure it's no, it's no accident that ICE came along after Enron died because I'm, you know, that technique has created a, essentially a false market in oil where there are people in the know as to where this dark inventory is and people who don't know, which is most, mostly everybody else. And the market has evolved over the last two decades. You know, different people have been involved, things have happened, et cetera, et cetera. But those techniques are what have made this market the thoroughly, it needs to be reconfigured immediately I gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee in July of 2008, okay? And I said then that we had to have that what the market was doing and, and we had to have some sort of transatlantic regulation of it. Did we get it? No. No. But it, it's just not sustainable anymore. It's just become 
we just need to have a different I, I talk about a global clearing system, energy mm-hmm. clearing system, mm-hmm. some sort of mutual agreement. You may know from your history that at Bretton Woods, Keynes came up with the idea for a clearing union. He called it the Bancor. Mm-hmm. It was a different model to the one that the Americans imposed. But that's an interesting piece of um, economic history. But it, it is achievable. Mutual global agreements are achievable. And, and I think that that's, that's the way that we, we're going to have to go. And that would impact the relationships between nations, between governments. And I mean, I just think it, it seems harder to imagine going you know, invading a, a nation, your neighbor, yeah. Um, yeah. if you have these mutual transparent agreements set up. Absolutely. And yeah. and not just that, there's a, there's a bigger opportunity. And that is think how much money and talent is being wasted on increasingly baroque weaponry and aircraft carriers with no enemy, you know, mm. and, and no, no purpose other than to make profit for you know, pretty indefensible businesses. When I was last in Moscow, and I've only been there twice, I was at a show, and there were weapons manufacturers there who were making presentations in relation to renewable energy systems because those guys have the expertise in engineering, you know, but it's, it, you could say it's a sort of source to plowshares, I think, which is needed here, Rachel. All of that talent, if it's put to the sort of smart swap that mm. I talk, talk about, that I think is what needs to change. Um, but that will take a sea change in attitude and we have to get there from here, which will mean, you know, baby steps. Um, because we have to build trust. Um, because at the moment there isn't any, far from it, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is part of this key problem of even beginning thinking about peace talks over mm. in that part of the world at the moment. I have one final question, mm. and that is that this invasion has um been used as a reason as to why we need to transition away from fossil fuels because Mm. of for example europe's dependency on russia and transition to renewables is that possible is that likely what would what would that look like is the market ready for it is it a real solution to a bigger problem or is it just sort of people jumping on a bandwagon for a different cause right now well you're talking about some people who said that but the usual suspects are saying the opposite they're saying this proves the need for more fracking this proves the need for everything so you you are saying you 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 are correctly saying what one constituency is is saying but there's another one who I think are probably in the ascendant at the moment. Yeah. Well, let's go back on all this stupid greenwash. All of that. You can hear them, can't you? Yeah. Um, what we have to do, I think, is to come up with a, you know, a, a sort of a balance. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I'm, I'm into mutuality and cooperation. And, and, and that fundamental point of would you rather have 100% or nothing or a smaller percentage or something? Yeah. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just I think this this concept of mutuality is so interesting because I think in today's sort of paradigm, the mm. concept of resilience is sort of like individual strength. Mm. 
So on a geopolitical level, it's like if a nation could survive mm. by itself, if that nation mm. could fight or if it had access to resources or whatever. And it just requires such an imagination to stretch that out to resilience is actually cooperation. Mm. And then the fantastic impact that that would have geopolitically and on our markets and on people's well-being. Mm. It's at first exciting, but also it's quite saddening to because it's such a stretch of the imagination. You realize just sort of how far behind we are really um in dealing with these questions and yet rachel the future is already here one of the um pieces of the global plumbing that's been sitting there for 150 years i mentioned it before i think is the protection and indemnity club where ship owners have been clubbing together for 150 years to ensure risks that the private sector won't take yeah. and a lot of the ship owning industry are not nice people some of them you know are but you can imagine that some of them most definitely are you know pretty ruthless and Mm. yet and yet it is in their self-interest to club together to mutual benefit to minimize losses and i think that mutual risk sharing is crucial to the markets of the future that mutual acceptance of each other's credits mutual acceptance of and, and assurance of risk I'm convinced that is the framework within which we can make a progress, you know, whether it's in the gas market. And I've always said CH4 is CH4 is CH4, mm. you know, and instead of oil being price, priced in the dollar and gas being priced against oil, which is bonkers, why, why don't we just say, well, okay, why don't we just have the dollar and oil priced against gas? Mm. You know, yeah. because gas is the same everywhere. Yep. CH4. Yeah. Except we're talking not so much CH4, Rachel, as the thermal mmbtu so that that is the potential for a sort of transitional mechanism a sort of gas clearing union and my friend marmot and i we put this forward 10 years ago in tehran mm-hmm. yeah but nobody was, nobody was listening <laughs> people might be listening now i hope um, so tune into the podcast and you'll yeah. hear it <laughs> chris thank you so much for for your time oh a pleasure rachel oh that a pleasure I've put links to Chris's work on resilient markets over at planetcritical.com if you want to learn more. And you can also subscribe there or on YouTube to support this podcast. If you like this episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it and you want to access the interview transcripts, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters and community. This work wouldn't be happening without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.